as we get into chapter 12, before we get to chapter 13, and, and you run into these chapters as you're working your way through Judges, where it's kind of like you're wanting to skip through some things to get to the main event. And the main event is we are rapidly approaching the, the most famous of all of the Judges, the most notable, the weirdest, the oddest, the strangest, Samson. Samson's story begins in chapter 13, and he's kind of the last of the judges as it pertains to this book. And then you get to chapter 17, and, and we get even weirder than we've been. We'll get to that. But the last of the judges is Samson, and that starts in chapter 13. And we've been looking at um, Jephthah, and we feel as though like there is a bit of a resolve to his story in the sense that he consecrates his daughter he comes back from this victory. He follows through with his vow. She's dedicated to the Lord. And we feel as the story's over, and then you get to chapter 12, and we're like, oh, there's a little more. <laughs> and so we have to do a little bit of cleanup on Isle Jephthah before we get to Samson. But these are important things. Again, this is, this is a chapter of Scripture, um, and, and it's there for a reason. There's a purpose behind this. And so as, as you're reading through things, you're like, well, I don't really know about all that. And you just skip through because I want to get to Samson. We've got to, at least I have to pump the brakes because it's like, this is, this is as important a chapter, chapter 13. And so it demands our attention. It demands our examination. And so let's dive into it. Verse one of chapter 12. Then the men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over towards Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down with fire. It seems like an overreaction by the men of Ephraim. Uh, the men of Ephraim, you should note, are not new characters to this overarching narrative that we find in the book of Judges. Again, the book of Judges, if, you, if you're new to the story, it covers about 400 years of Jewish history. The, the book ends to the book. Uh, judges, this period begins with the death of Joshua, and it ends with the birth of really the last judge, Samuel. And so we're looking at a period of Jewish history, 400 years, and that's a long time. And we have these cycles, we have these waves, we have all this story. We have these tribes of Israel. One of the things that Joshua did as they entered the land is each tribe was given a portion, a territory that was theirs, an inheritance. Not all of the tribes, you should note, took their inheritance inside of the actual borders of Israel. Some of them took an inheritance uh, on the eastern side of the Jordan, but they were all given an allotment. And so when you read of like, the men of Ephraim. Like, what does that mean? Well, Ephraim is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the men of Ephraim are the descendants of an actual guy named Ephraim. Same with Manasseh or, or Judah. Uh, the tribe of Levi is the descendants of this man, Levi. And you can go all the way to the end of Genesis and you can read about Jacob giving their blessing. I, I'll take one step back just in case you don't know. You hear the children of Israel. What does that mean? Well, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. So when you refer to the children of Israel, you're, you're referencing the descendants of this man, Jacob, and then the various families. Now, Ephraim's an interesting cat. First, Ephraim, along with his brother Manasseh, are not the direct sons of Jacob. In fact, they're the two sons of Joseph. They were born in Egypt. And when Jacob is giving his blessings, when he's 
ordaining the tribes, he actually takes on, he takes Joseph's inheritance and he splits it to his two sons. Now, the reason for this and why we have 12 tribes, we have varying lists, is Levi, the tribe of Levi, became the priestly tribe, but they weren't given an actual allotment in the land. They were to be the priests of Israel. They weren't given a portion of the land. They had cities that they could live in. They were to be kind of supplemented by all the other tribes because of their unique calling before, before the Lord. But you had Ephraim and Manasseh, these two sons of Joseph, end up taking the allotment of the land from Levi and then Joseph because it was divided. So this is how it all works out. Ephraim, again, is a, an interesting tribe within Israel. Ephraim seems to like um, just something inherent to these men that they're very arrogant and they're very like pushy and they're very haughty. And in fact, one Deuteronic scholar describes the men of Ephraim as being, note, dominant, arrogant, envious, and filled with discontent. Sounds like a great group of people to hang out with, right? In fact, in our travels, we've seen Ephraim do this again. Back when Gideon, God calls Gideon. Gideon has this great victory. And Gideon is, they're in the middle of the battle, they're in the pursuit. And he gets to the land of Ephraim. The men of Ephraim come out identical to this. And they're like, whoa, why didn't you call us? Why are you getting all the glory here? Why are we not part of the crew? Now Gideon deals with the men of Ephraim tactfully kind of very diplomatically. And again, he's in the middle of the fight and this is kind of fits Gideon's personality. But we now find the men of Ephraim doing the same thing again, but they're not doing it to a man in the middle of the battle, Gideon. They're doing it to a man who's just lost his daughter. (laughs) Jephthah is going to handle the men of Ephraim a bit differently than Gideon. Now, they come out, why didn't you include us in the fight? And then they, they just like, they go from zero to a hundred so fast by this, de- this threat. We will burn your house down with fire. Now, for a man like Jephthah, he takes a threat seriously. <laughs> He's not to be trifled with. Now, keep in mind, we're dealing with the family of Israel. We're not dealing with like a foreign power making a threat. We're not dealing with like other nations trying to make incursions. This is part of the family of God. These are brothers. This is within Israel. And we see this schism. So Ephraim comes out making these threats. Now, Jephthah said to them, verse two, my people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. And when I called you, You did not deliver me out of their hands. Now that's interesting because Ephraim has accused Jephthah of not including them. But Jephthah's like, whoa, that's revisionist history. Like, let's get on the record here. I did call for you guys. What did you do? Well, you did what you did with Gideon. You didn't help because you were hedging your bets to see who would ultimately win. Your turncoats and your traitors and you're trying to twist history to justify your actions. I called you, you didn't come. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Now I love this about Jephthah. I, 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 I 
Again, Jephthah is included in the Hall of Faith. This list of Old Testament heroes acknowledged by the Holy Spirit in Hebrews chapter 11, Jephthah makes the cut. He is um, a bastard. He was kicked out of the nation uh, by his brethren because he was a threat. He is basically an Old Testament Robin Hood. He gets called back to lead the children of Israel. He has this incredible knowledge. You go back to the previous chapter of Old Testament history. He knows the scriptures, which again, when you take into account his upbringing is amazing. Like his knowledge of Old Testament history, his knowledge of the scriptures. And then he's a man of conviction. He makes a vow to God and he follows through with that vow. However you want to read that particular chapter. He is a serious man. And here Ephraim's like, hey, you're now getting all the glory for this great victory. Why didn't you include us? Why? Because they're envious. They wanted to be out front. They wanted to be the leaders. They wanted the acknowledgement, but they had been weak. And Jephthah's like, wait a second. First, I called you, you didn't come. Secondly, this wasn't my victory. I love that about Jephthah. He defers the glory, doesn't he? God didn't deliver the Ammonites into my hands. He delivered, he delivered. God did a work. You chose not to be a part of it. And now you're wanting glory for something that you were not a part of. I'm not even taking the glory. It was all the Lord's. Like there's this, this, this noble perspective. Now they've made a threat though. And they've come up to make good on their threat. Verse four, now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and he fought against Ephraim. So this is civil war within Israel. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, you Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassehites. I'm not gonna bore you. That's just an insult, okay? If you study the history of it all, them calling the Gileadites refugees is... Uh, it's thumb in their nose, they're insulting them, and they're not gonna take the insult laying down. So the Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, then say, Shibloeth. And he would say, Sibboleth for he could not pronounce it right. Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. There fell at the time 42,000 Ephraimites. And Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried and among the cities of Gilead. So there's this battle, there's this conflict, there's a civil war. Gilead has the victory. The Ephraimites are fleeing. They cut off the pass. Now, they're all Jewish people. They all look alike. So they're trying to differentiate in the checkpoints. Who's an Ephraimite trying to escape and who's just a normal traveler? And to do that, they employ this, this word test. Because apparently the Ephraimites had a unique dialect that meant that they couldn't pronounce the sh, the H. Hey, say shibleth, sibeth. Oh, I know who you are. And they would take him because of the mispronunciation, the accent basically employed. They would know, okay, you're an Ephraimite. And they would kill him. 42,000 Ephraimites die. Like this is, this is crazy. It would be like setting up a blockade and saying, uh, please say y'all. 
you all, <laughs> we know you're not from around here. Or say tomato, tomato, potato, potato. Nope, you're saying it wrong. Coke, pop. No, that's, that's not a thing. It's a couch, not a Davenport. Like, you know, it's interesting. Language reveals a lot. Like this is, this is the, 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 the test that the Gileadites used to identify the Ephraimites. You know, the Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, that you can tell what's in the heart of a man by the words that come out of the man. And again, they're able to judge the Ephraimite, identify the Ephraimite by his dialect. Now, isn't that an interesting thing? That maybe the world should know us by our dialect, by the words that we use, by the things that we say. Hey, I'll I'll be honest. This is something that in my own studies, the Lord just is working me over. Is my language distinct? Or is it similar? Is it the same? Do people understand there's something different about me by the way that I talk? Or not? Is there something unique? Is there a distinct a distinctiveness? Something to think about. Now, why is this in the scriptures? As a student of scripture, I encourage you on your own study to ask those type questions. When you get to a passage like this and it's kind of like an obscure 42,000 Ephraimites get killed by the Gileadites because of this, this conflict. Why is this even here? Before you just skip through it, I encourage you, and this is just an exercise that I employ, to say, okay, why? Like, in the big picture, why? And, And that can be a difficult thing to answer. You have to kind of work your way through a lot of other things. You know, it's worth noting that of the Ephraimites, you have two notable heroes that come from this tribe. First, the very deliverer, the original deliverer. When Moses was forbidden from taking the children of Israel into the land of promise, God anointed another man, Joshua, to do it. Yahshua. He's an Ephraimite. You see, Ephraim had this legacy. God wanted to use them. And they always seemed to fall short of that. The other notable hero, descendant, is our author, Samuel. Samuel was an Ephraimite. Now, if you know the the larger story of Ephraim, Ephraim ends up aligning itself. So you had King Saul, gives way to King David, gives way to Solomon, and it's the golden age. But Rehoboam, who follows Solomon, the son of Solomon, the grandson of David, the kingdom ends up splitting in half. And you have the southern kingdom known as Judah. The primary tribe was Judah. Benjamin went with them. And then you had the northern tribes that was known as Israel. And Ephraim would play a significant role, not just in the division, the splintering of the nation, but the introduction, the promoting of idolatry. 
And as a result, as a consequence, Ephraim would be judged harshly. I think, and it's, it's just my opinion, again, trying to answer the why we have this. Samuel being an Ephraimite, seeing this checkered history of his tribe, includes this story, which by the way, would have been like his parents' generation. So this is close. Samuel probably would have known people that died in this, this scenario. That Samuel is trying to warn his people, his tribe, of this tendency of arrogance, of haughtiness, of pride, of discontentment, of disunity. Ephraim is always fostering disunity in the family of God. And Samuel is saying, you need to stop it. Like God has allowed consequences. Gideon didn't do anything about it. Jephthah did. And God used that and you should wake up and change course. Now they don't. And they suffer a tremendous consequence as a result. They are destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. And their descendants get dispersed. In fact, there's kind of an, it's all, your own study. But if you go to, to Revelation chapter 7, the first eight verses, again, we, we find um, this accounting of the 12 tribes, God ordains 12,000 men from each of the 12 tribes to act as evangelists during a tribulational period that's still yet future. In that list, you will find notably absent Ephraim. In fact, we find the tribe of Joseph mentioned, which seems to be God's kind of like insulting of Ephraim. I'm not even gonna call you by your name. Now, there's a great restoration because if you get to the very end of the story, you look at Ezekiel 48, the 12 uh, foundation stones of the new Jerusalem of the 12 tribes, Ephraim is back included. There's two tribes that seem to be wayward and the big history. Ephraim is one of them, and I think that that's why this is included. The other, by the way, will be the tribe of Dan. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but if you go to Judges 17 and 18, you're going to find out the origins of the wayward heart of Dan and how they end up uh, making some terrible decisions that lead them to to where they end up. Uh, But I think that this is why we find ourselves, find this passage, a warning shot by Samuel to his own people. God will not be, you know, disunity is the opposite of the spirit. The spirit of God is to bring unity within the fellowship of Christ. The, the absence of the spirit is the fostering of disunity. We need the Holy Spirit. We need something greater in each of us that transcends whatever differences we could have that would divide. It is so easy to find reasons to divide. Naturally, we gravitate to our own kind. There's something even the way that we were created. You go back to the origin story. Genesis, creation, God made each according to its kind. You find that refrain over and over and over again. Even within like society, social groups, we gravitate towards the people that are like us because we're more comfortable. We have naturally things in common. It's, it's an organic thing. You look at a, a middle school lunchroom and there is a natural division of all kids. You got the skater kids and the jocks and the cool kids and the weirdos. Like like you end up, people gravitate. It's a natural thing. It happens. The church is to be an abnormal thing in that regard because we have something in common 
We've been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and we've been filled with the spirit of God and whatever it might be that would separate us or divide us, we have a commonality that supersedes it all. So that's why disunity is such an insult to the cause of Christ because it articulates the opposite of what the church is to be. The church is to be a place filled with all kinds of people that are completely different that would never be caught dead with one another apart from Jesus. Chad Mosley and I are about as polar opposite of people as you could possibly be. He'll tell you that. And, and, and apart from Jesus, we would never be caught dead hanging out. I like hotels. He likes the ground. And yet, I'd lay down my life for my friend. Because Jesus gives us something so much deeper, so much more real and palpable. See, Ephraim gets judged because they fostered disunity, they're nagging, and they're complaining, and they're self-focused, and they're self-indulged. And God's like, you know what, Jephthah, wipe them out. I think Samuel brings this lesson because he's warning his own people, like, this ends in destruction, disaffiliation, cutting off. Verse eight, and after him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. This is probably a different Bethlehem that was located in the north, not the Bethlehem of, of Judah. He had 30 sons. He gave away 30 daughters in marriage and brought in 30, from, 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. He judged Israel seven years and Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. Thank you for those details. After him, Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel. He judged Israel 10 years. And Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Agilon in the country of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pariathon, Parathonite, you can try that on your own, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. He judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite died and was buried in Perthon in the land of Ephraim in the mountains of the Amalekites. So we have three more judges. Uh, we have found similar lists tucked in in the book of Judges. Uh, they are designated as being minor judges, not because they don't have any more significance than the others. We just don't know anything about them, but they are included in this list. And we're, we're told that they ministered, they, they judged, it's interesting that, that within this list, I think there's two things that we should note about it. One is the really um, overt contrast of these three men to Jephthah. The, the one thing that we find in common with these men is that they were, um, they judged Israel and they were very, um, they had large families. Wonderful inheritance. Jephthah, in contrast, his only living heir gets consecrated to the Lord. His, his lineage ends. We're given specific locations of these men and where they died, where they were buried. Jephthah, we're just told, he was buried in one of the cities of the, of the Gileadites. So we're not even given a specific location. There's this contrast. And I think the contrast is that, was God any less pleased with Jephthah than these men? No. Like we'll see in the next story that, that just because you don't have kids, just because you know, that, that you're not blessed with 
that family legacy doesn't mean that your legacy in the eyes of God is any less. Like we all stand individually before God. I think that there's just this contrast, that there's something to that. Also should note um, that, that we are in a period of time where a refrain we have seen used often has disappeared. Within our cycles of Israel, you know, we would see the, the, the children of Israel in rebellion. They would be crying out to God and their suffering. God would hear their cries, provide a deliverer. Then there would be repentance. And then what would happen? That judge would rule for 40 years or 30 years or however long they lived, 20 years. And, and we're told that there would be peace in the land or rest in the land, that things would be quiet. We don't find that here, do we? We find one judge after another judge after another, another judge. We have no mention of there being any peace or quiet. We don't have any reference of people crying out for a deliverer. It's just this successive order. And you know, when you're looking at the book of Judges in its totality and its progression, I think that there's a lesson, an application we can draw from that. You know, God's patience, his long suffering, does run out at some point. Like the Bible even, even talks about, you know, the searing of one's conscience. That, you know, God will speak to us and he'll warn us and he'll say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. You need to repent. You need to change course. This leads to destruction. And he'll speak to us. He'll speak through people. He'll speak through God's word. He'll speak through the still small voice. But the more and more and more we reject the revelation of God, the the speaking of his spirit, there does come a point that in an act of mercy, God's like, you know what? Have at it. And he withdraws himself. I had a buddy of mine that that, uh, we got together and he was talking about just he felt spiritually stale. He had, hit, he had hit a wall. He was in a rut. And he couldn't figure out why. I said, well, there's really two causations for, for that. One is um, what I call spiritual constipation. Um, it is there's a spiritual law that fits the physical law. If you are input, 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 and there's no output, 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 you're going to be sick. And sometimes when we feel like we hit a wall, it's because we, like the Lord's pouring so much in and nothing's coming out that we get sick. And so what's the remedy? Serve. Find a conduit. Like input, output, there should be a flow within the spiritual life. But there's another reason that sometimes we hit this wall. And it's the fact that God has been speaking very clear to us about some part of our life that needs to change. And we know it, we've heard it, but we're resisting it and we're not doing anything about it. And at some point he's like, you know what? Cool. I'm going to chill out here. and You just keep doing your thing. And we hit a wall and we wonder why. And sometimes there's sin that God's speaking to. And he's like, you're not dealing with this. So you know what? I'm going to take a step back until you're ready. Because revelation, amount of revelation always correlates to the amount of accountability. The more God reveals himself, the more he'll hold you accountable for you rejecting his revelation. So I think at some point God's like, you know what? Out of, out of trying to minimize the judgment, I'm just going to lessen the revelation until you're ready. So we find this list, but absent of the list 
is any peace, any rest, and it feels like the, we're marching to the end. Well, that leads us to verse 1 of chapter 13. We're told again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. We have seen that over and over and over again. That is the last time we'll see that, um, that refrain in, in the book of Judges, that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, there's, there's a couple things that we should, we should point out um, that's tucked within this verse. First, within the timeline, while we read of this story that follows, uh, there's another biblical character on the scene. Um, his name is Eli, and he is the high priest of Israel. He is serving at the tabernacle in Shiloh, and he has two sons that are wicked and evil. Eli seems to be a good man. Eli will be the man that we end up having a little youngin dedicated to the temple by the name of Samuel. So we are, we, are in, we are in this story already. The biblical narrative, there's some overlap here. So when you read of Samson, when you read of his story, there are, are contemporaries alive in Israel, also being used by the Lord in, in various ways. So keep that in mind. We have a new group being introduced to us known as the Philistines. Uh, the Philistines, we should take a moment and discuss them, uh, not just because of their relevance to the story of Samson, but as you continue your own studies of Scripture, you find that they're the predominant enemy of Israel moving forward, at least until you get to the Assyrians and you get to the Babylonians, you get to like global empires. In regards to the regional conflicts, it's the Philistines uh, that we find being the, the, the main antagonists with, uh, with Saul. And remember Saul's king, uh, one of the Philistines, Goliath, comes out, is, is mocking the God of Israel, and it's this little shepherd boy that ends up stepping up for the Lord and, and throws a rock, hits him between the eyes, and that's little David. Like, the Philistines um, are, are present through the reign of Saul. They become uh, the, the, the chief antagonist of the reign of David. David's the one that will ultimately kind of deal with the Philistines to keep them at bay. Who are the Philistines? Interesting. Please note that the Philistines are not a Semitic people. They're a non-Semitic people. What does that mean? That means that the Philistines are not descendants of Abraham. Most of all of the people that we've been looking at have an origin, a, a, a lineage, an ancestry dating, going back uh, to Abraham. Obviously, the children of Israel um, would descend through uh, Isaac, the son of promise, and then Jacob. But you also have two other um, you know, men that would have their own lineages, Ishmael, and then also Esau. Um, we also can note that Lot is still part of the same family of Abraham. And so like descendants of Lot still are Semitic as, as we would define them. The Philistines, the best we can tell, we're not a Semitic people. They have no uh, genealogical origins or connections or links uh, back to Abraham. In fact, archaeological evidence seems to indicate that they, be, that they originated, they began in the island of Crete, that they were actually Grecians way back when, that they, origins of Angloism. In fact, history seems to indicate 
that the Philistines, the word Philistine means invader, that they came down from Crete to try to invade and take over Egypt. But they were thwarted. They failed in that endeavor. And so they, they immediately kind of bailed out into the next closest place, which was a, a territory between Israel and Egypt. We call this area the Gaza Strip today. The Philistines would settle there. Um, they would um, develop into five cities. They were not nomadic like a lot of the other people. They rooted into this particular area. They had five cities. They had their own fortress. It was their own territory, and they stayed put. So they have an origin outside of the Middle East, probably Greece. They brought an interesting, technologically, they were way more advanced than anybody else in the area. In fact, that the Philistines had been able to develop smelting techniques where they could create iron. When everybody else was using inferior weaponry, the Philistines had developed superior items. In fact, the historical description of the armor of Saul is the greatest, oldest um, description, most detailed description of ancient armor um, in any book of antiquity. Like the Philistines were, were smart. Um, they were wicked. They were evil. Now, the Philistines today, and this is worth noting, the Philistines are an extinct people. You will never meet a Philistine today, genealogically. They would have these quabbles with Israel. They would stay where they were. They would fight the Assyrians. Nebuchadnezzar would destroy them thoroughly. Nebuchadnezzar would wipe them from the face of the earth. So that's around 600 BC that the Philistines ceased to be an ethnic group. Again, you will never meet a Philistine today. Now, if you fast forward to 136 AD, the Roman emperor Hadrian, wanting to insult the Jewish people, started referring, this is the first time you'll find it, they started referring to the land of Israel as Palestine, 136 AD, some 750 years after the Philistines. Palestine is literally the, the, the English derivative of Philistia, which we find in the Greek. So it's the, it literally means land of the Philistines. So the Romans, as an insult to the Jewish people, started to call the land of Israel the land of the Philistines, of which there were no Philistines anymore. Palestine, as an insult, as a slight. There is zero connection to what we know as the Palestinians and the Philistines. Because sometimes you're going to find that we're like, well, wait a second, the Palestinians, it's the land of uh, the, the Philistia, they had this connection. So wait, they have as much of a claim to Israel because, I mean, look at their genealogy, how long they're back into the land. First, they didn't originate in the land, first point. Second, they're not Semitic, they don't descend, meaning that anyone that's a Palestinian is not a Philistine. Because everyone that's a Palestinian, is, is a, they're Semitic. They all actually descend from Ishmael. They're Arab. And so just for clarity, the Philistines, the invaders, um, just thought I'd, I mean, that was a freebie, just a free history lesson. Now, there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink, not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. We can't even begin to unpack with the time we have left what's all happening here, other than the fact that I do want to emphasize a few things, again, that are absent. Um, do we find, we find the, the chapter is introduced in a similar way. Children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. We've, we've seen that. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. We've seen that. 40 years, by the way, is the longest period of time. It would appear that the children of Israel in their own slide away from God, what's absent? There's zero cry. 40 years they're under the thumb of the Philistines. Do we find any mention of them crying out to God? Nope. Do we find any mention of them even crying out in their suffering? Nope. It would appear that the children of Israel at the end of this slide have just full, they've just embraced it. They've embraced life apart from God. They've embraced Philistine life, the worshiping of false gods, the adding of those false gods to Jehovah, which is an abomination. There isn't a cry. It's it's gone. Similar things, they did evil, God delivered them. Nothing comes next. And yet what do we see? Is God done with them? No, in fact, when everything within the nation gets the darkest to the point that just objectively, as we're reading, you say, well, they're gone. 40 years is a generation. They're done. In the midst of the darkest of moments, what happens? God appears to a woman and he says, I'm going to give you a son who will deliver my people. Now just stop there. That is completely unique in Judges, isn't it? Have we seen that before? We have not seen that at all. We have not seen any of the judges, their birth being foretold by God, which by the way, angel of the Lord is a Christophany. This is Jesus. We'll get to that next week. Things are the darkest, 40 years of bondage. They've just embraced it. They're so beyond the pale, they don't even recognize their, they're cool with their suffering. And it God comes to a woman, unannounced, unprovoked. There's nothing in the children of, they're not crying out for deliverance. They're not crying out for repentance. They think they're just fine. And yet God intervenes and he says, you know what? I will still deliver my people. And he comes to a woman and says, you shall bear a son. That sound familiar? You see, Samson is, is, is interesting. He is unique in so many ways to all of the other judges. And he's mainly an example of everything not to be. He is, in some regards, the opposite of Jesus. But his origins begin the same. In fact, the end of his story is what? Samson sacrificing himself to deliver his people. Again, sound, that's not familiar. 
having his arms placed between two pillars. Look familiar? You see, Samson presents for us a very flawed. But we learn a lot about Jesus and the things that Samson didn't do. But Jesus did. Things are darkest. You know, maybe you came here this morning, and we'll close with this, just ambivalent. Your life is where your life is. Deep down, you might know it's not where God wants it to be. But you're not searching, you're not seeking, you're not asking, you're not repenting, you're not acknowledging. In fact, your friends might have even given up. And your parents might have given up. And the people around you might have given up. But God hadn't. Because even when it's the darkest, he can send Jesus. He can send Jesus. And he sees you. And he's not through with you. Whether you're in this room or you're watching on that screen, everyone might have given up on you but not Jesus. So Father, we just let that settle.